everyone, and welcome to From Tip to Tail, a podcast dedicated to animal welfare. This podcast is sponsored by Cuddly. Cuddly is the only crowdfunding platform built specifically for animal welfare organizations worldwide. I'm Bridget. And I'm Sydney. We've spent years working with animal rescues and have seen such amazing innovation, strength, and heart. Having this personal connection with rescuers has made us more informed, grateful, and inspired. We hope by giving you an inside look, you will be too. Today, we're going to be speaking with Spencer Conover, the Assistant Director of POSCO Animal Services, which is a Florida-based shelter with a goal to serve, protect, and provide for the animals and communities of POSCO. We're so excited to get into this, so let's get started. Hi there, Spencer. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you all doing? So wonderful. Really great. Um, I'm not sure how it is on the, I don't know if you consider yourself the East Coast, but definitely Eastern from us, but. Oh yeah. East Coast. Uh, we're on the West Coast of the East Coast. We're on the West Coast of the East. <laughs> it's beautiful here now. We, would, we wouldn't trade it for anything. We live in Florida for a reason. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. I can imagine you don't, you don't move to Florida on accident. I feel Absolutely. like. <laughs> so I know we're going to get into a lot of really great stuff because we're always super interested in hearing a little bit more from our shelter partners and the things that you're doing and how you're working to help animals on your end. But we always like to roll back the clock a little bit. So as a kid, were you a huge animal lover? Uh, I was. It's interesting. I, I tell people all the time, oh, there's so many dog people. But if you work in this industry for any amount of time, you become a cat person because you see the need that's there for cats. As a kid growing up, I remember we took in a stray cat and it was a little boy cat and it was a calico. And my family quickly learned that we didn't know the difference between male and female cat. And we learned that all calicos are females and we had a litter of kittens that we had to take care of. And it was, uh, it was a really cool experience that kind of definitely turned me on to, to taking care of animals and loving cats and then loving those things in your community. And then uh, taught me a little bit about responsibility and care for animals. I always like to point back to that little experience is maybe why I got involved in animals in the first place. Definitely. I mean, I feel like the same for me. It's, <laughs> you're so right. You can't not be a cat person at a certain point here. You're like, oh my gosh, like that's where all the hurt is happening. I say it all the time. You know, we talk about a no-kill community or a no-kill country or we, we often say if, you know, dog people are so vocal, cat people are so passionate but they're not always necessarily as vocal as dog people. And I feel like if we had enough of our amazing, amazing cat people at half as vocal as our dog people in this, in this industry, uh, our country would be at no kill tomorrow. And we're all working toward that. And I know there's so many amazing people who care about both dogs and cats. And we're now finding new ways and innovative ways to bring all those people together, which is really cool. Oh, that's so great. We always hear statistics about how like basically cats own the internet. Like, Oh, yeah. yeah. If you want likes on a post, man, just put a cute kitten on there, right? Absolutely. Definitely. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And I love that you had that experience growing up because I feel like I had that. I'm, I'm sure Sid had that experience too of like where you think something and you find a cat and all of a sudden you have a ton of kittens and you're like, oh my gosh. Um, and it like feels magical as a kid, I think a little bit. Yeah. Me and my brother definitely, I remember distinctly, my brother was big into connects, which was kind of like Legos. And he built an entire like maze for the kittens as they were like three, four weeks old at the time. And they would go in the little maze and we would you know, help them get out. And it was a really, really cool experience. I definitely remember that. Wow. Oh my gosh. That's like hilarious and very cute. What, what dedication too. Oh, absolutely. You gotta, you gotta keep them busy, man. If we know anything about foster kittens nowadays, right? It's like we should give every foster parent like giant Lego kits or connects or something to keep all their kittens uh, you know, happy and, and excited and all that. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well then as you grew, how did you first start getting, what, where's your background and how did you eventually become involved in animal welfare then? So the irony is I actually went to school for journalism. I went to the University of Florida and graduated with a bachelor's degree in telecommunication with a focus in sports journalism, right? I moved from the University of Florida to uh, Denver, Colorado and got a job at a local radio station and ESPN affiliate in Denver, Colorado. And my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time. I don't even think we were engaged. She worked at the local animal shelter, the Dumb Friends Lake in Denver, Colorado, which is the largest nonprofit shelter in Colorado. Amazing, amazing work. And we both worked there for a number of years. But I was looking for 
an additional position because my radio job, as those that work in radio know, doesn't pay a lot. <laughs> so I was looking for for some additional some additional work, and I applied for the position of a pet photographer. So I was like, man, this is like kind of related to what I went mm-hmm. to school for, but not really. And I didn't get the job, but the customer service manager called me back a week later and was like, hey, we don't think you're right for this, but we have some opening in our intake department. And we think your personality would be a good fit for your intake department. And I needed a job. So I, I quickly agreed, not knowing that I had just agreed to work in the intake department for an open admission shelter in one of the largest cities in the country. And myself and a team of four or five other people managed the intake of 21,000 animals a year into wow. that shelter for 10.50 an hour. And so that, that was, uh, I always love to say that there's a, a great phrase of everything you needed to know you learned in kindergarten. I would say 95% of what I learned in animal welfare, I learned in that intake lot, uh, helping people in an open admission shelter. We heard every uh, reason for surrender, every uh, I know, reason for stray, every piece of strife that somebody was going through to try to keep their pet. Um, we got to experience it in the years that I was with the Denver Dumb Friends League. And so that was definitely an amazing experience. From there, uh, I had the opportunity to move to Salt Lake City, Utah. Uh, where I got an opportunity to work with Best Friends Animal Society, which is a national and everybody. Well, I love that reaction, Bridget. You can, when I mentioned Best Friends Animal Society, everybody smiles because they all know Best Friends, right? It's, uh-huh. it's an organization that's doing so much good for life-saving across the country. And I got to visit their, their beautiful sanctuary in Kanab, Utah once, you know, once a year. And I, I managed the adoption center there in Salt Lake City. And we had to partner with a lot of local shelters and open a neonatal kitten nursery, one of the first of its kind in the country. And it was, it was amazing. And then from there, I spent a short amount of time as the director of operations for the Humane Society of Utah, which is the largest nonprofit shelter in Utah, which was an amazing experience. I got to lead an incredible team there. And then from then, uh, my wife and I had a baby and we're from Florida and both sets of grandparents said, if you don't move that baby back here, we're going to abandon you. <laughs> and so we both moved back to the state of Florida and, and everything happens for a reason because at that time I had a great opportunity to join the team I'm on now, which is at Pasco County Animal Services. And I feel so blessed to be with this amazing leadership team, the, the team that works every day to help animals in our shelter, help animals in our community, and most importantly, help the people in our community with those animals. And so I'm really, really blessed to be a part of that team. And we have an amazing director and amazing staff, wonderful volunteers, and great support from the county. And so it's a pretty good, a pretty good combination, and we're, we're proud to be a part of that. Wow, that's quite a resume. Truly, um, <laughs> I could go on. I love talking about myself. No, I'm just <laughs> no. I mean, I really though. I feel like all of those positions are so admired, and I mean, obviously, organizations that are highly respected. And then for you to come around and be like, bring it back to your hometown. In the end, with all of your experience that you gained, that must be an amazing thing that you feel like can actually make a difference right next door. Oh, absolutely. You know, people ask me all the time, you know, where are you from? How did you end up there? It's like, man, I went to high school down the street. Like my high school is like 10 minutes from here. And it was cool to get out and explore the world and work for those amazing organizations. I think one thing that really hit home to me was the work I did for so many years with Best Friends Animal Society and working with the local shelters. We were able to make a lot of, a lot of change, but we felt like something was always missing. And what we constantly went back to was if we could take these protocols and these procedures and these operations and a shelter had really good leadership, we could make some serious change. And it always came down to, man, if there was somebody leading that shelter that was doing a really, really good job, we could do some great things. And so that really inspired me that I always knew, although I had done the work with best friends, I would end up back in a shelter. And up until my current position, I had never worked for government municipal sheltering before. I had always worked with nonprofit with the Humane Society of Utah and the Dumb Friends League, which were both incredible experiences. And with that, I feel like I've been able to take these awesome programs that oftentimes you associate with a private 501c3 nonprofit shelter and bring it to the government municipal world. And so many people during my time with Best Friends, well, you can't do that at a government shelter. You can't do that at a government shelter. Well, yeah, we're doing it. You just do it and you find ways to do it to help the people in your community. And, you know, there's obviously different issues that you run into and, you know, there's benefits and and issues with government versus nonprofit and you run into both of them. But the important thing is to to make sure you're doing everything you can do within an organization 
to help as much as you can. And that, that really doesn't depend on a label of government versus private. And I, I feel really honored to be able to do the things that we're doing at, at the government municipal shelter level. I think we're, we're kind of paving a way for a lot of other of our partner shelters around us and then hopefully around the country. Right. And I mean, it must have been a little bit easier to, to have like these case studies and of these tried and tested projects that it's not like you're just like, hey, let's throw something against the wall and see if it sticks. It's like, hey, in my past life, this worked and this made this kind of difference. Yeah. It was part of leadership was I had to understand that there's different ways to communicate with different people. I think in my first two weeks with Pasco County Animal Services in my current role, I used the phrase, well, at best friends, we did blank <laughs> about 150 times. And mm-hmm. I realized that was frustrating a lot of people because, you know, there are these people in this position for many years that well, we're not best friends. We don't have private money. You know, we'll have $100 million in the bank. And, you know, we're not a national. Well, we get that this organization isn't a national organization, but there's still ways to operate and programs you can instill and then procedures you can instill. And I think that finding that way to communicate that past experience, like you mentioned, Bridget, was was really was really important. And I feel like each member of our leadership team kind of takes criticism differently and, and respects communication differently and has different paths to what they want to do and where they want to go. And I think me as a leader and our director as a leader had to find that along the way. And I feel like we're in a really, a really good spot right now because of that. I would say, I think it bridges the gap too. Like you said, I think nonprofits and municipal and different kind of animal welfare organizations, they have certain ways of doing things depending on whatever sector they're from. But the idea that you can still learn something from each other, you can still bank off something that one type of organization does, and it can still benefit the other, regardless of whether it's municipal or whether it's nonprofit or whether whatever that stands in the middle. So I like that. I like that you were able to bring things over and people are like, you can't do that. You can't do that. But you're like, no, you can. You can learn something from that type of organization and you can benefit it for the other. And I think there's, you know, something to the fact of throwing things against the wall and giving it a shot, right? Like you had mentioned, Bridget, is that we can do that to, a, to an extent, is that there's things I brought from the private world that did not work here. And that's to not have that fear of failure when you're looking at implementing a program like that or a service like that to your community and that, hey, let's give this a shot. We have the money to do it. And it's a, a demand of our community. Uh, it didn't really work out. A perfect example is when I first got here, there was a... Uh, a behavior trainer on, on the payroll. And we had looked at offsetting the cost of that salary by offering public classes, like puppy classes and training classes. And for a lot of communities, that was a high demand. And I'd seen it work at other shelters, specifically private shelters. After the first year and a half of that program, I think we'd only made like $600 off of the class and nobody was signing up for them. Nobody was attending them. And so we quickly realized well, that may work in Denver and it may work in Salt Lake City. It didn't work in Pasco County, Florida. And so we had to, we had to adjust and we did. And it, it's not a failure. It's something that we tried. And if we look at bringing something like that back in the future, as far as post-adoption behavior support for our community, it's going to have to look differently than how we did in the past, right? And so it, it's not being afraid to try something, but also, like you had mentioned, bringing everything you've learned to this point into the organization you're working for, regardless of what it's called or how it's structured. I love that, what you're saying too, because I mean, looking at your experience too, certainly like mountainous, like Denver, (laughs) and then (laughs) desert Utah, and then tropical Florida. I mean, there are some very different, let's call them opportunities uh, (laughs) in each location. And I'm sure different demographics of types of people. So I love that you're finding like the basic framework, but then tailoring it to what really works for your community. That's really wonderful. Yeah. And there's different challenges too. I mean, I, we were, we experienced in Salt Lake City, people would mention kitten season. We always talk about kitten season in this industry. In a place like Salt Lake City, there was kitten season. It would snow like a beast around Halloween. And then you wouldn't see another kitten until, you know, late March, early April. And so for those six months, there was no kittens. Flash forward here to Florida. And it's here, you know, you get temperature in the beginning of March in the mid 80s, right? And so you're seeing kittens year round. There, there's a kitten season where we see an uptick, but you're seeing kittens year round. So you have, in your organization need to have a plan for that. And what's going to fit in one shelter is not always going to fit in another. But that doesn't mean you can't learn from your mistakes and learn from your failures and ultimately encourage and practice and learn from your successes as well. Right. And I mean, I wonder. 
after you moved back, do you feel like you kind of saw your community in a different light? Like, I feel like for me, when I drive around, I don't notice certain things. And then as you walk, you learn a little bit more. And especially as you get involved in animal welfare, like suddenly in my own community, I'm aware of like the dumping sites and where the community cat areas are. And it's like, I've lived here for decades. And how am I just noticing this? Well, community cats is the big one, right? Is that as growing up, we just, there were just some cats running around and you didn't know anything about it. And now all of a sudden that we're in the industry are hypervigilant to that's where a colony is. And that's the community where that caregiver gets, takes care of those cats. And it's something definitely to be aware of. And absolutely. I mean, my, my hometown is always going to be my hometown, but we definitely look at it differently now. My wife always jokes with me about you know, we'll go out and about and, oh, look at that cute dog. And you're like, oh, is it wearing a license? I don't know. We should check. I mean, do it. Does it know about spay and neuter? We should give them options. And like, I'm, I'm like constantly, my mind is always working like that. But as you get into this profession, it's so hard to turn that off, right? Mm-hmm. When you're not, when you're not in the office, when you're not at the shelter, you're out, you know, enjoying a nice Saturday and you see a cat in the park and you're going, oh my gosh, I have a trap in the, in the trunk of my car. I can, I can go get it and make sure it's fixed. And it is definitely hard and you do, you see your, you see your community in a different light for sure. I know it kind of, uh, it's almost like a little <laughs> monster has buried itself in my brain. I feel like, like I was um, with a few rescuers doing a transport a little, like a month, maybe a month ago and a giant plane took off and every single one of them was like, Ooh, we could fit a lot of dogs in that. Plane. <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> um, and it's like, it's just a plane guys, but they just see it through the eyes of a rescuer forever. Now you can't un- unsee it. <laughs> I have, you have to, as a, as a leader within this industry, you find your team going through that too, right? It's, you know, we have team members that work as incredible animal care technicians on our team and they work with enrichment with animals all day long. And then we see through social media that they go home and they're scouring the lost and found pages and they're working with rescue groups. And it's like, how do you balance that of someone who's so passionate that wants to do this for 20 of the 24 hours in a day, but as a leader, help encourage them to take that much needed break to prevent things like burnout and compassion fatigue and everything like that. It's, it's definitely difficult because for a lot of people, if not everybody in this industry, it's the passion that got them into it, right? It's mm-hmm. the passion that drives them. But for a lot, it's also the passion that will, that will encourage, you know, I guess encourage is a bad word, but uh, ruin this industry is a better word that will ultimately, their passion will ruin this industry for them because of how much it takes over their lives. Absolutely. That's so, so very true. I feel like we've seen it too. Like there are founders who eat, sleep and breathe it. And then after a few years, like they can't anymore. They, they can't live this life. I'll give you a great example. We've done over the last three years, around 20 hoarding cases in our county. I'd be willing to bet 13 to 14 of those are rescue organizations that just got so overwhelmed. It's not, you know, the crazy person you see on TLC episode of hoarders, right? It's the rescue organization who got in over their head because they were so passionate and so overwhelmed and wanted to help so much that they didn't even realize what they were doing at the time. And so it's so important for for us as the municipal agency and the leaders of of animal services in our community to understand our partners and what they're going through and try to help them as much as we can. I love what you're saying too, because you're referring to yourself as a shelter, as like an animal welfare leader. And I feel like this, there's this unfair stereotype where people look at shelters as like these mean people who don't actually love animals. And certainly, I mean, judging by your experience, you love animals. And I feel like it can be so easy for people to fall into that because they hear these horror stories of budget strapped shelters who are forced to make really hard decisions. And I'm sure there are bad apples, but also like you can't label an entire group of people with one bad apple. I'm wondering if there's some barriers to the innovation that you've done though. I mean, working in a municipal kind of setting, um, there have to have been some kind of hoops <laughs> you had to jump through. Sure. I think, you know, twofold. One, you mentioned the budget. Our county has, has asked us perennially to come back with a flat budget. So it's the same from year to year. And if we need any additional items, we have to ask for them, you know, specifically. And, and although our county has been unbelievably supportive and we are blessed in Pasco County to have had, you know, nine to 10% economic growth annually over the past several years, unlike some other counties, even through the pandemic. So we, we are blessed. We did not lose anybody, knock wood, through the pandemic. But 
our county annually asks us to come back with a flat budget. And so I think one of the things we quickly had to learn how to do was these innovative programs, these services we're offering our community, it wasn't going to be something that we were going to be able to say, we need $50,000 to do this, right? We need $100,000 to do this. It was, we need to design that program with the resources we currently had. And one of the great examples is our, our Leave Them Be program, which is our community cat program. And we had built a culture for years, decades, of if you find a cat, bring it to Pasco County. If you find a cat, bring it to the shelter. And we knew that the industry was changing in a way where we were partnering with national organizations, Alley Cat Allies, Best Friends Animal Society, and now most recently, the Human Animal Support Services Movement, where that wasn't the best answer for cats in our community. We launched an offensive to tackle that problem rather than expecting our community to accept it. We were the ones that put together the marketing campaign and all the collateral to go along with why, not just what you should do if you see a community cat, but why you should do it and why you should help these cats and why they belong in the community. And that was a huge one for us. And it was very successful in the first year in an organization where we had taken in every year 700 more kittens than the year before. In 2019, we saw almost a thousand less kittens in one year just because of this new program. And the reality was we didn't spend a dime on it. It wasn't any extra money. It wasn't any extra funding. It was focusing our current resources on why we were taking in cats and why we shouldn't moving forward. Not because we didn't want them in the shelter, but because we wanted to help them in our community. And although that's sadly still a controversial topic for a lot of people, uh, it was very important for us to, to communicate that to our community. And they came to support us. A great example is we expected, because of the controversy surrounding it, our decision to support community cats and colony caregivers, we had launched proactively community cat chats where we were going around to our, we partnered with our local libraries, where we were actually presenting in our local libraries talks about community cats. And we expected so much negativity. We expected pitchforks and, and people with fire and just, you guys got to get rid of these cats. And what we found was in the first few, we would bring an animal control officer. Our director even came out to talk. And what happened was the crowd was overwhelmingly people that wanted to help community cats. They wanted to help trap. They wanted to help transport. They wanted to get the cats in their community fixed. And we loved that. We knew at that moment because of the way we had communicated it and because of the way the makeup of our organization, we had the support of the community. And that was huge. That was a huge breakthrough for us. And although there's always going to be individuals who are not going to support your mission. The overwhelming uh, you know, population of Pasco County supports what we're doing. And it wasn't always like that. And, and there's a lot of great examples of how that had to change over the last decade. But our Leave Them Be program with our community cats is a one small good example of, of the success that we've had over the last several years and how we best communicated that to our community. It's so amazing too, because I just well, first of all, I mean, as we've already said, obviously community cats are are hurting so badly. And it is, I think it it's so right what you're saying, where it is just a lack of communication and people don't understand why they should do A, B, or C. And especially since up until a certain point, I'm not sure, I read something where it was like, maybe like 30 years ago, they're like, yeah, you bring an animal into the shelter. That's what you do. And to really change that mindset is just so important. But more than that, I mean, it just sounds like as an organization, you're just investing in education, which is so amazing. <laughs> yeah, thank you. We really appreciate that. And once again, it goes back to why your organization operates as opposed to what. When I first came to Pasco County Animal Services, the shelter was very, very, very crowded. So we had to put a moratorium on accepting owner-surrendered pets. We were taking so many strays and so many injured animals and so many neonatal kittens that unfortunately we had to redirect individuals that were looking to surrender their pet to other organizations, private organizations. And what I did a poor job at the time and our organization did was we didn't communicate why that was, right? And so our team was even confused, much less the public. Animal services doesn't take in owner-surrendered animals. And we never said why. The why is I don't think anybody should have to give up their pet. Mm -hmm. It's not because we don't want them in the shelter. Of course we don't want them in the shelter, but I don't want them in any shelter. And we have to start looking at how we can take the resources we have and ensure not that we can pay to institutionally house that person's pet in our shelter, but we can use those resources to ensure that person gets to keep their shelter. 
help them repair their fence, give them free spay and neuter surgery, offer them low-cost vaccinations, help them with cat deterrence if they have cats in their yard. There's so many different ways that we can help ensure people are able to maintain that human-animal bond with the pets that they love so much that why would we focus our resources on taking those pets away from those people and putting them in a, in a you know, four-by-four kennel? I love that you say that because we were just talking with a shelter who was mentioning that because she takes in owner surrenders and she says 80% of the time, these people want to keep their pets. They just don't have the resources or they don't necessarily know how to go about keeping their pets. You know, maybe it's a behavioral issue. Again, maybe it's a fencing, maybe it's neighborhood dogs or cats or whatever. So she's like, we provide them with the resources because those, if you offer them, people will take them because they want to keep those pets in their home. It's It's not that they're just giving them away because they don't want them anymore. Usually there is a reason. And if we can provide them with the resources or the education, they're more likely to keep them in that home. So I love that you said that because I I think that, like I was saying before, there's, you know, there's a lot of stigma that comes around people who want to surrender their pets. There's a lot of other outside communities and people that see those instances and immediately demonize those people or think that there's something wrong. When in reality, it's just sometimes they need the education. Sometimes they need the resources. Sometimes they need something. And then they'll willingly and happily keep their pets. Absolutely. I think you're starting to see a transition period of our industry where it was very easy and very expensive to just say, yep, if you don't want it anymore, we'll take it. I'll give you guys a great example. We got an animal control call probably once a week for a period of two months, maybe two and a half months from an individual. Hey, this, the neighbor's dogs are out again. The neighbor's dogs are out again. The neighbor's dogs are out again. Mm-hmm. We sent an officer out. Finally, when the dogs were out, instead of we had everything on our right within the ordinance to impound those dogs, seize them from the pet owner, issue citations and move on. But instead, the officer knocks on the door and says, hey, what's going on? Like, what, I know what's, what's happening here? And the woman very upset. You know, my dogs are three male dogs. They're not fixed. I have holes in my fence and they're out looking for ladies. That's what adolescent male unfixed dogs do. And they were, you know, you know, scouting the neighborhood for lady doggies. and. So what happened was, instead of seizing those dogs, we worked with the pet owner and said, you know what? I don't want you to have to give up your pets. Let me take them. We'll get them fixed. The next day, I'm going to bring them right back to you. In that day, while the dogs were at our shelter getting fixed, to no cost to the pet owner, we issued no citations. Our animal control officer went off on her day off, which I'm still upset about, to Home Depot and went and got supplies to help that lady fix her fence. And I'm looking at that going, ultimately, the neighbor's happy because the dogs are confined. We also gave the, 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 nice, the, the nice woman, the citizen, uh, leashes and harnesses so she could walk her dogs on leash, which is incredible. The neighbor's happy because the dogs are confined. The woman is ecstatic because she got these services. She got a, a partner. She got to make a partner in the community with animal services. And you talked earlier about the reputation of animal services. A lot of that is not the fault of the community. It's the fault of animal services. If we would have went in there and taken that woman's dogs, I wouldn't have blamed her for hating animal services, mm-hmm. right? Because they're taking, you're breaking that human-animal bond. But two, she got to keep her pets. And three, the taxpayers of, of Pasco County are happy because we don't have to now find new owners for those three dogs that had an owner that loved them very much. And so for us, that approach is a win-win-win. And now we need to look at how to, how do we make that the norm as opposed to a cool story that I'm telling you guys, right? Because that shouldn't be the anomaly. That should be the norm of our industry is how do we help people keep their pets and help their pets as opposed to acting as if we are the police. We are, you know, we are taking these animals from these people when in reality we need to help. We need to help these folks and the animals that they care for. Mm -hmm. That's so wonderful too, because you know too now this woman is just going to be singing your praises forever. Like every single time she takes her dogs for a walk. That's so amazing. More than that, I mean, it's also amazing to hear an agency that is actually being of service to their community, it just sounds like, instead of like policing them, basically, you're going in and you're like, let's find a solution that'll make everyone happy. (laughs) I think one thing that we are very, very blessed here in Pasco County, and this is a situation I walked into, is that you see so much, so much of the spectrum when you talk about where animal services falls within county government. A lot of times it might fall under the sheriff's office. A lot of times it might fall under the public safety with fire rescue. We are blessed. We fall under public services here in Pasco County. So our animal services are right alongside parks and recreation, the libraries, 
transportation services, human services, senior services. And so we are solely focused on service excellence, which is one of our county core values. And we absolutely love providing that service excellence every single day to the citizens of our community, as opposed to an organization that might be locked into a public health and safety kind of model. Whereas our organization, our number one goal is public health and safety. If there's a situation in which an animal is causing a public health and safety risk, we are going to seize that animal. We're going to do everything we can in the full extent of the law. The difference is 99 out of 100 times, these animals aren't causing a public health and safety risk. There's a situation in which we can help this citizen and we need to figure out the best way to do that, like the situation I kind of explained a little earlier. Absolutely. So after the past year, which I mean, I don't live in Florida, but I'm going to assume that you guys were not unscathed by COVID. (laughs) So how did things change over there for you as far as like day-to-day operations and then even on a grander scale? We had obviously struggles. We had challenges like everybody did. But I will say the animal welfare industry as a result of COVID was probably one of the luckiest industries in the country. There were entire businesses outside of, you know, in private business that went under, people were dying. One of the things we saw as a result of COVID was, okay, everybody go home for two weeks. Everybody took an animal home. Our shelter was empty. A lot of shelters were empty. And what happened was, as we spent this time during this pandemic, a lot of our partner shelters started to see those numbers creep back up. And an empty shelter became 10% full, 20% full. And now we're, you know, over a year later, we're looking at shelters that are back to normal, right? And we heard that phrase a lot when we were empty. And, you know, the shelter, you know, team would say, oh, you know, when we get back to normal, even our director to an extent, uh, when things go back to normal, this is the new normal. And I know that's such a cheesy phrase, right? But we had to find a way to find sustainability for the short-term success of emptying our shelter, right? And what we learned as a result of COVID was, the community was willing to help a heck of a lot more than we thought they were in the beginning. When we said for a two-month period, now our shelter never closed. We were open to the public, but you had to schedule an appointment. And we offered very, very minimal resources during that two-month period between March 2020 and May 2020. But what we learned was we said for two months, hey, if you find a stray dog, hang on to it. And here's how you can try to help us get it back to its owner. And while we had a handful, and I'm talking a handful, one, two, maybe three people, who were raising the flags to say, no, you're animal services, you have to do this. The vast majority of the community understood and they were willing to help us. So not only were we not taking animals into the shelter, people that found a dog were knocking on their neighbor's doors and saying, hey, is this your dog? Hey, is this your dog? And what we found was our return to owner rates were skyrocketing because are people more likely to find the owner if they look around the neighborhood in which it was found or drive it to a shelter 25 miles away, we found that, you know, when the community is willing to help us, and that's really the definition of community-based sheltering, is not having animal shelters in your community. It's having individuals in your community support what you're trying to accomplish as a shelter. And in that instance, getting pets back to their owners is first and foremost. We don't want to take in any animals. We're actively trying to put ourselves out of business. And what we can do is leverage that support that we saw in the short term during COVID from our community and now turn that into programs and services we can offer that uses that support, optimizes good work, optimizes that support so that we ensure we're only using the resources we need to use at the shelter for the animals that truly need it. And then flip that around and reallocate the rest of those resources to those community programs like fixing people's fences and helping people with medical bills and things like that. So that's kind of how it's, how it's changed for us. And although we're still learning what that means, I'm really proud of the team and how we've partnered with national organizations like Maddie's Fund and the Human Animal Support Services program through this. Because when you say, go back to normal, this is it now. This is normal for us. The irony is people would say, we're taking in less animals. We're taking in less animals. While that's true, it's not as staunch as a lot of people would think. Uh, We've only taken in in 2020, it took in rather in 2020, about 700 less animals than we did in 2019. The difference is how we were getting them out, how we were helping them, and what that looked like from our shelter's point of view. For instance, 
in 20, 2018, as recently as 2018, the length of stay for an animal in our shelter was 26 and a half days. We were spending tens of thousands of dollars a year on medication just to treat sick animals in our care. Flash forward to 2020, the average length of stay for an animal in our care was 5.5 days. Oh my gosh. So now we're not spending money treating animals that are sick because they're not staying long enough to get sick. The next thing you know, we have that entire budget to turn around and flip it on more services for the community, right? So it's all about optimizing what you're doing, ensuring the animals in your community are safe, and then reallocating those resources as best you can to help people in your community. That's incredible. Especially, I mean, given, I mean, we've talked to so many rescuers and that's who we're typically dealing with. And so we see the other end of like, they're pulling them out of a shelter. Oh, this animal has been in a shelter for six months. And it does have just like such long-term effects on the emotional state of the animal. Of course, the physical is so many different ways and it takes so long to flip that. And so it's amazing to hear that you're just like, no, that doesn't help anyone. And I love too, this just sounds like you're just connecting with your community so much. It's like we were talking to, was it Dallas Animal Services? And they were saying something similar with a lot of these dogs that are running around. Like they actually live three houses down and just no one realized. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> were you guys talking to Ed from Dallas? Oh, no. Oh, I love what Ed and that team has done down there. And I know he's with another organization now, but he and I are on the, the board of the National Animal Care Control Association. And he was a great inspiration for us because he took a problem that was a huge problem and used it to help more animals in his community. And that was, that was definitely an inspiration for us. Absolutely. They're incredible. And it was like, even like some of the problems were as simple as, hey, just take a look where this dog lives before you drive it all the way back, like to the shelter. One of the things was buy-in from our team, right? And people have asked me all the time, like, oh, you want to do this, you know, this floofy animal rescue style of animal control? How are you going to do it? You know, we sat down with our animal control officers and said, hey, would you rather pick up a stray dog, drive it 20 miles back to the shelter, try to find a kennel for it because we're full and you can't, vaccinate it, try to treat it with some, some intake medication, try to find a kennel for it, do all the paperwork, or would you rather carry a microchip scanner on your truck and go looking for the owner three houses down? And the answer was unanimously, oh my gosh, I want to do the one that avoids me an hour and a half worth of work, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think if you, to those that would say you can't do it this way, you cannot do community-based animal control, haven't actually looked at how to operate that and or talk to their team about it. And that's, I would encourage them to do so. And you're going to have your, your detractors and you're going to have your people that can't think, that don't think it will work. But to the individuals that have looked at our organization and said, you can't run animal control that way. We're doing it. We're at, we're, come on down, come visit. We'll, we'll show you around. You can ride along with our officers. We're doing, we're doing a great job. And there's, there's days, like I said earlier, where, yeah, we do have to impound animals and we do have to take animals from people. And, but we want to make sure that we've tried every single thing we can do before that happens. And that's really the key. Yeah. And it's using your, the community to your benefit. Cause I swear, I think, I mean, probably a mile down that way. I probably know I've seen all the dogs being walked and things like that. I'm very familiar with, you know, I've seen that dog in my neighborhood and whatnot. So if someone came to me, I was like, oh yeah, I've definitely seen that dog in the area. I feel like I could probably give a better, I guess, direction of where they should go versus them driving 25 miles and having, you know, no one recognize that dog. So it's almost as if using, using the people around you to your benefit. And the problem is the, or the industry has built such this reputation of, if I find a dog, I take it to the shelter and I've done my good deed. And so we don't want to deter, uh, discourage people from thinking they've helped animals. But the reality is how do we communicate that doing your good deed for that dog looks very different now? You're much more likely to find that dog an owner or its owner rather. Mm -hmm. If you go knock on the doors for 20 minutes rather than spending that 20 minutes driving to the shelter, right? Yep. And so we want to encourage people, please, if you find a stray dog, yes, you should do what the best thing you can do for that dog and be that good citizen and do that good deed. It just looks different now. And the problem that we're facing as an industry is how many years have we built that culture of find a dog, take it to the shelter, right? It doesn't happen overnight. You can't say with the flip of a switch, okay, no, stop bringing stray dogs to the shelter. Mm -hmm. But a great example is our, we'll get back to our community cat program. When we said, okay, here's our community cat program. You shouldn't bring cats to the shelter we still took in 1,200 kittens that summer. It wasn't 
hey, we're not taking them in. It was, hey, here's the best, absolute best way to help these kittens. And we still had 1,200 kittens that came into our door where people thought they were doing a good deed. The great part is the next summer we'll have 1,000. And the summer after that, we'll have 800, right? And so it's this incremental growth toward redefining the culture of what animal services looks like in your community and how people can actually help you. Finding the dog, bringing it to the shelter, shelter, yes, it takes the dog off the street, but is it actually helping the dog to the best of its ability? Taking a, a litter of kittens away from mom and bringing it to the shelter, is that actually helping the kittens? No, it's not. And now we need to better define what that means to our community and communicate it well, right? Because if you're not communicating it well, it doesn't, it, none of it matters. You as an organization, for give you a great example, we have 36,000, something like that, Facebook followers on Facebook. It's great. We love our Facebook following. 36,000 people know that we have a cat community cat program and what they should do if they find a straight dog and yada, 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 all the way down the list. The problem is there's 540,000 people in this count. So to think that we can just rely on our social media reach to communicate to people in our county, that's ridiculous. That's not even 10% of our total population. So how can an organization redefine a culture of animal welfare in their community? if they're only relying on one way or are antiquated ways of communicating to the public. And it seems crazy to think that social media is antiquated because it's, it's brand new, but a lot, you see so many organizations, oh, I'll just push that out. I'll push it out on Facebook, right? Well, to, to, you know, to a lot of organizations, that's not going to be good enough because you have to look at overall percentage of your population and how, what's, I guess, the best way to communicate with people in your community. Right. I know there are still a lot of people not on social media too. And even if you are promoting it, like only 10% of your followers are seeing it. So yeah, this is West Central Florida. We got a lot of elderly population here. Not a lot of them are on social media, right? We could, we have this big, beautiful Twitter account and a great Instagram account. And I can tell you right now that less than 2% of our county's population is on, right? And so it's something that you have to look at multiple ways to communicate to, to your community. Right. So you're making these like institutional changes. It sounds like education. But you're also going out and you have a microchip clinic that you're doing as well. Can you maybe talk a little bit about that? Because I feel like it's truly incredible what you're doing with that. Yeah, this is a, a great program that came out of a pretty poor situation. We took in a dog as a stray, no identification, no microchip. Uh, our legal stray hold is for a dog in our community is three days, 72 hours. So we held this dog for about six days. And then it went to a rescue organization who ultimately adopted that. About 12 days in, the dog's already gone. It's with the rescue group. It's been fixed. It's been adopted out. Someone contacts the organization. I found the owner. Unfortunately, that dog had, you know, it's, it's, it's the new home. And, and so mm -hmm. while some of the community was upset, this was like a, like a light bulb thing for, for me in that we knew we had people in our community who wanted to help because of the people that were upset, we had two rescue groups specifically come to us and say, hey, this situation sucked. How do we prevent it from happening in the future? Our first idea was, boom, if that dog had a microchip, we, it wouldn't even come to the shelter. The officer that found it would have driven it right to the person's house and given it right back to him with no fees or anything. And that person, that dog would still be with its pet owner. And they said, great, let's focus on that. And each of the rescue organizations donated $500 a piece for a total of $1,000. We matched that $1,000 and have now held three free microchip clinics for uh, citizens in our community, one in the central part of the county at our shelter, one in the east part of the county, uh, which is a high population for stray dogs at our fairgrounds, and then one in the western part of the county near our government center. Uh, that's a highly populated area of the county. And through those three microchip clinics, we have vaccinated, or not vaccinated, I'm sorry, microchipped for free, close to 500 uh, dogs in our community. One of the best things is through support of these two rescue organizations and through support of cuddly.com, we've now encouraged other organizations to where we've gotten additional donations to where people want us to host more microchip clinics. And so we're currently in talks uh, with a radio station uh, looking at hosting something in June at a local dealership in the northern part of the county or the northwestern part of the county to continue this more. And as, I, as it comes out of this situation where we easily could have said, no, nope, dog's gone. Sorry, they're going to have to adopt a new one. We've now looked at this and said, we don't want this situation to happen in the future. How can we prevent this? And yeah, it's not microchipping every single dog in the county, but man, it helps, right? Mm -hmm. It's providing this service completely free of charge to these citizens who wouldn't have normally gotten these dogs microchipped. 
And I cannot wait for the day that we get a stray dog in and it's one of these dogs we chipped at one of these clinics, right? And we can just drive it right back home instead of having it sit at the shelter. I'm really excited for that day. So incredible. I mean, because we hear about like low cost clinics all the time, but like for a shelter to be advocating for this like totally free way that people can keep track of their animals. I mean, that is revolutionary, truly. And I mean, you're keeping families together. That's (laughs) the best part of it. The ultimate vision that we have is, you know, we had our Save 90 mission. Our organization, as recently as 2012, had a horrendous save rate. This is prior to myself getting here, or even our current director, even the current county administrator or assistant county administrator getting here. The shelter had a save rate of about 25%. And so the county instituted a Save 90 policy, which was very similar to a no-kill policy. And what we found was, over the last couple of years, we discovered that that mission was very self-serving. It was very much to improve the reputation of the organization in the public eye. Now that we've achieved that mission and we have a save rate consistently between 94 and 95%, where do we go from here? Because our Save 90 mission is saving animals that are coming into the shelter. And the reality is we don't want them to come into the shelter, right? We want people to keep their pets. We want stray animals to go back to where they are. We want community cats to get medical resources they need and to remain in the homes that they're in, which is the community that they're being cared for. And so we have found that our goals have shifted from this Save 90, specifically a Save 90 facility, to this mission of creating and nurturing and cultivating and preserving this human-animal bond between people of Pasco County and their pets, right? And that looks very differently to different people. But ultimately, that's got to be the mission moving forward. And if that means 10 years from now, we don't even need a physical shelter because our programs and services and everything's encouraging and and keeping these animals out of the shelter and in the community, I think that's amazing. That's absolutely incredible. Truly. Mm -hmm. Well, so how do you work with rescues at this point then? Because we always know that there's like typically like a partner program or something that you have going on, but wondering how you do it. Absolutely. So. In 2000, the summer of 2019, uh, we were visited by the University of Florida shelter medicine team. And we're very blessed to be in the state of Florida. And it was just a short two-hour drive for them. And Cameron Moore and her team came down to our shelter. And they had a lot of areas for improvement for us. They had a lot that they liked. Like I said, in 2019, we had actually achieved our Save 90 mission for the first time. We had 91%. But we knew there was a lot we could improve on. I had already mentioned earlier, our length of stay at the time was about 26 days-ish in our shelter. And her recommendation was get these animals out of the shelter faster. At the time, we were sending about 70% of our animals through our adoption program. And our length of stay was high. People were adopting them out. And consistently, because of that length of stay, we were offering, like many other organizations, waived adoptions, buy one, get one, adoption promotions, you know, get a black cat free this weekend, things like that. We turned our focus from an adoption-based live outcome focus to a rescue-based live outcome focus. At the time, we had about 400 rescue partners. The problem was not a lot of them were active, and a lot of them were breed-specific foster-based rescues that would take in one, maybe two animals a year. So if you're looking at 400 rescues in which half are not active and half take 1.5 animals a year, the reality is we were only sending about 600 animals to rescue organizations. We flipped it on its head. And we start, and we, you know, we talk in this industry all the time about removing barriers for adoption, removing barriers. We weren't doing that for our rescue groups. And we really wanted to focus on that just as much, if not more, than our adopters. And so we said, yep, you want to come get an animal from our shelter as a rescue group? Come get it. We're going to fix it. We're going to vaccinate it. We're going to microchip it. We're going to give it a rabies shot. We're not going to charge you a dime. We're going to offer you seven days post rescue veterinary care if they come down with a shelter related illness because we would have done that for an adopter anyway. And with these rescue organizations, we wanted to give them as much as we would give any adopter. And I think what we see in our industry sometimes is organizations that are hesitant to do that for rescue groups because they want to reserve that for adopters, right? And the reality is all we wanted to do was get the animal out of the cage and living in somebody's home. And so what we did was we partnered very closely with our rescue groups. We brought on a lot that were private rescue organizations that are actually high adoptions organizations. So the traditional rescue model of a shelter, I would say, is probably, like I said, the foster-based single rescue. 
we started partnering with SBCAs and humane societies and local brick and mortar shelters. We were providing them altered, vaccinated, healthy, friendly, adoptable animals. And so with their organizations, they were going very quickly and they were beating down our doors to get more because one, they were making 100% profit with the rescue organization because they weren't putting medical resources into the animals. And two, the animals were healthy, friendly, and adoptable. And so what that did for us was it created this revolving door of, yeah, we're helping the animals in our community that need the help, but they're not staying here, which is great. We weren't putting restrictions on, there was a two-month-old Maltese puppy and you're a rescue and you're the first one here, take it, right? Just take the animal, get it out of the shelter. The conventional wisdom would say, well, that animal can be adopted out. Yeah, it could. But what they're going to do now is three years ago today, we had almost 500 animals in our care. Mm -hmm. We walk into the shelter this morning and there's 71. So what that forces people to do and forces a wrong word, but what it encouraged people to do is now twice at that eight-year-old all-black cat. They're going to look twice at the five-year-old pit bull because that's the only option they have for adoption. The flip side of that is, yeah, we're giving these animals away for free, right? We're not collecting the adoption rate. But the reality is organizations all across the country, including private organizations, will constantly offer those adopt one, get one. Here's a free weekend. We haven't had to run a promotion like that in almost three years because our shelter is not full and people are paying full price adoption fees for the eight-year-old black cat and for the five-year-old pit bull because that's all there is to adopt. So the reality is we have not lost any adoption revenue. Animals are leaving our shelter infinitely faster and our rescue partners are getting inventory for their shelters to adopt to their community to collect more revenue on their end so that they can come back to our shelter and pull the animal with the massive medical condition, right? The broken leg, the dog that needs the FHO surgery. Hey, I just made 1500 bucks off of dogs you gave us for adoptions. Let me pull the, the serious medical one and I'm going to invest that money into that dog to save its life. It's all working together. Rescue's working with the shelter and, and everybody working together. It wasn't always that way. There was a time based on our save rate and based on our model that the rescues hated us. And our pet services supervisor likes to talk about how she had to go on the apology tour in 2017 and build these strong relationships. But as a result of that, it, the program we've built is, is incredible. And we're very, very, very proud of it and very blessed to have the partners in the rescue world that we do in our community. I'm totally in awe. That's incredible. I'm willing to bet like any rescuer listening, right? Like that's going to be listening to this is just going to be like in tears. Like, are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. Like vaccines, spay and neuter, like all of that just done. And if you want to come partner with us, we're in Pasco County, Florida. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No, yeah. I mean, heck, why not? We've got some great partners. Our partners are not exclusive to our county. We have partners from other counties that drive distances to come partner with us because we offer those resources. It's not a slight on the organizations that don't, because if that fits your model, Mm -hmm. then that's great. And I think that's one of the best things about the direction our industry is going is that success and community support and life-saving looks differently in different communities. Like you mentioned it earlier, Bridget, is that works in Lando Lakes, Florida might not work in Salt Lake City, Utah, or in Denver, Colorado, or in Sacramento, California. And so what we've done, I hope, is an inspiration for organizations to try it, like we mentioned earlier. And if it works, awesome. I think it will. But if it doesn't, there's so many different ways that you can find success in life-saving in this industry. Great example is, you know, there's this huge push right now Foster, 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 foster. We tried it and it didn't work. We had one part-time foster coordinator. We lost a bunch of animals. Animals were dying in our care because we didn't have this medical support. And so we changed our model to a rescue-based model and it's, it's worked infinitely better. But I also know organizations around the country in which foster has been a tremendous success. And so I love that it's not a cookie cutter thing, right? It's not, this is how you run an animal shelter. It's there's so many different ways to find success. And we love that, that we found it in this unique, innovative way. And we hope that it helps inspire other organizations to give it a shot and, and, par- and create programs like we have and to find success with community support. Well, I mean, and certainly with when people look at you, it's not going to be the kind of situation where it's like, well, I know that area and there's just not that many animals. Like you're dealing with such high volume as well. So to be able to find this success and do all this innovation with the capacity that you're doing. I mean, that's incredible, truly. Yeah, that's the first question we always get. Well, how many animals do you do? Mm-hmm. Right? It's, 
you know, we peaked in 2018, we were close to 8,000 animals a year annually. And although we've limited that number down to 5,500 through our programs and and into diversion and and community support, I mentioned earlier how we were blessed because we've seen nine to 10% economic growth, but we've also seen nine to 10% population growth during that time. Right. And that's, that's what that equates to. And so there's more people coming to this County. And I feel like there's a new apartment complex every week and there's more pets coming to this County. And so how do we create sustainability? for ourselves, it was almost a have to, it was almost a necessity, right? Is that we see what's on the horizon and that our population of 540,000 people in this county is going to look a lot like 750,000 over the next 10 years. How do we ensure that we've created programs and services and protocols to ensure success for our shelter and our organization moving forward? And this is one of the ways we had to do it. We knew if we had just kept going with the same model of, yep, we'll take in everything, we'll take in everything. There's no way five years from now we'd ever be able to keep up with that. Yeah. And so it's almost out of necessity we had to try this, but I'm glad it's worked the way it has. And I, there's definitely no going back, like I said, and we'll see where it goes moving forward. Yeah. I mean, I think your community is going to just keep growing because I think so too. If the government agency is looking out for you like that, and mm-hmm. if everyone is getting to stay together with their animals, your whole community is going to be just like the happiest people in the United States, I think. One thing we're uh, extremely proud of is our county every year puts out a citizen survey in which they, they pull the citizens on essential services and how the services have, have been. In 2020, uh, the county saw animal services ranked in the top 10 of essential services for the county. And the uh, polls uh, in this survey, the highest increase in level of service for the entire county was animal services at an 18% increase. And wow. so people, in the community are starting to realize the value that we're putting into pets and the value that we're putting into the human animal bond. And even in a survey of people that are not on our Facebook group or not following our Instagram, just a general survey of the community, you're starting to see that change in reputation, that change in belief in our services. That's very, very important for us. And we're very proud of that number. And we hope to, we hope to grow on it you know, this year as well. Absolutely. I mean, we want to see you grow too. This is all so inspiring. We also have some kind of fun questions though. So I'm assuming, speaking of human animal bond, you you have some personal pets at home? I do. Yeah. This is a crazy story. So I have been working in this industry for 10 years. Uh, That was 10 years on December 2nd, 2020. I have never adopted an animal while working at a shelter. I had two dogs and a cat. I got them both while I was in all three rather when I was in college with my girlfriend at the time, now wife. And I have been very good. I've fostered many, many, many animals, but I have avoided the uh, temptation of bringing another one into my house. Now, part of that is my cat hates other cats and (laughs) I'm a cat person. And so she runs the house and has determined no other animals. But a little fun fact is I have not adopted a single animal while working in this industry for over a decade. I think that's not many people can say that. Uh-uh, definitely <laughs> not. It is good self-control. Yes. That means you just have this space for more fosters too, right? It's true. That's what it is. And me and my wife love fostering. And, and when we worked for Best Friends Animal Society, she worked in the neonatal kid nursery and we fostered tons of litters. And it was, it was a great experience. And I would encourage anybody that doesn't think they can add a new pet to their family. And that's a completely responsible decision to offer to foster um, specifically neonatal kittens and underage kittens. And it's a great experience, but yeah, I have tons of room to foster and I am sure one day as my pets are now, I got them in college. So they're now almost 15 years old. So the day will come when I will adopt another animal, but it's been, it's been interesting that path. Well, at 15 years old, I imagine your pets are kind of sleepy and lethargic <laughs> most of the time. I love how sleepy my pets are. I make a joke <laughs> all the time about you know people that adopt puppies and kittens in this industry. And I joke all the time about my buddy, Joe, who's a lawyer. And he, he's a lawyer all day. And he doesn't go home and watch Law and Order at night. And so I can't imagine working in a shelter with dogs and puppies and kittens all day. And just the energy of a puppy to me is just horrifying right now. And so I think if I did adopt another animal, it would be an an, an older pet, which we know in the shelter industry, they need, they need the love just as much as the next one. Right. And so I think that's a, that's a good balance. Absolutely. 
Well, so I guess this can be like totally historical then since you've had them for a really long time. (laughs) We have some kind of fun questions. So the first one I want to ask is what is the naughtiest thing they've ever done? Oh my God. (laughs) My dog Sticks, who's named after the band Sticks, S-T-Y-X. This dog should have been a rescue dog for the military. My wife will have her purse, which has a makeup bag in it, which has a Ziploc in it, which had a cracker in it one time. And we go out to like mow the lawn or even go take a walk with our daughter. And that dog will bust into every nook and cranny of that bag to pull out that Ziploc. She should have been a rescue dog. She pulls out everything. We cannot leave. Even at the old age she is, if we leave something on the counter, like I'll put leftovers from dinner in a Tupperware and it's like, oh, I don't want to put it in the fridge yet because it's still hot. No, it just (laughs) rips it off the counter. That dog is so naughty and so smart and we love her so much, but we have lost a lot of leftovers and a lot of, uh, a lot of Ziploc bags to that one. Oh my gosh. That's amazing. (laughs) That's, uh, okay. So another, and I know this one might be kind of putting you on the spot, but is there like a specific animal welfare group that you have like a crush on or that you like admire what they're doing? Oh man, that is putting (laughs) me on the spot. I will say I obviously have a place in my heart for Best Friends Animal Society. I work there. The work that they're doing nationally, if those of you that are in the industry that have not been to the animal sanctuary in Kanab, you know, people say it's a life-changing experience. It really is. It's really, really cool. But I will say right now, I have a crush on the Human Animal Support Services model. I mean, we as an organization are a tier one shelter uh, with their with their program. And we are just, I talk to, we talk to our director all the time. The director talks to me. We are all in. We are just all in on everything they're saying. And that sounds, definitely sounds like we got a crush for sure. But we are all in on keeping animals out of our shelter, helping the community, saving money, reallocating resources. It is literally everything that we wanted to do over the last decade and manifested into a program, right? And we are absolutely in love with that. And so I would say definitely Haas right now is, is where we want to be. Definitely. And any rescue listening, I mean, it's definitely open. It's so amazing to like literally bringing in these amazing leaders who have just so much experience and just like foresight into the future. And then they're all pulling their resources together to come up with good solutions to problems. It's amazing. It is absolutely incredible. And, and the leaders at the top of that with, with Kristen and Bobby and you know Dr. Jefferson and what they're doing is absolutely incredible. And the support from the supporters of, of Haas, which took this nugget of an idea in the beginning of COVID and turned it into what it's in now, we have to absolutely stand back and thank those people as well, the supporters of this, this animal welfare movement. Absolutely. Well, so our final, final question is not any easier, unfortunately. <laughs> what is one life motto you live by? I have two. And my team knows and this is, this is frustrating for them. And it's also, I feel, inspirational for them. They have two phrases that they're not allowed to use. We can't do that. And that's the way we've always done it. I absolutely hate those two phrases because as I mentioned earlier, the idea that we can't do something, uh, my dad always says, you can't fly and you can't be president of the United States. The job's already taken. You can do anything else you want to do. And so I feel that way in our industry. Don't ever say you can't do something. If we feel like we can't do something, then we've already failed our community. The second is, you guys know I'm a huge advocate for innovation. Obviously, some of these programs we're doing are innovative. Innovation is one of our county core values along with service excellence, and we live it every single day. And so the phrase, because that's the way we've always done it. See, I can't even say it because I hate it so much. (laughs) We have... On the the scale of the law of diffusion of innovation, we have people in our industry, we have people in our county that are laggers or or late adopters, and they utilize that phrase because it's comfortable to them, right? The reality is growth does not come from your comfort zone. Growth comes from outside your comfort zone. And to think that we're going to do something for the the sole fact of that's the way we've always done it, I am going to challenge that all day, every day. And I think that's definitely one of, if not the biggest mottos I live by, for sure. So amazing. That's so great. Thank you. I feel like I am like speechless a little bit here because of everything you said and all these amazing, like, I feel like you said the things that like are so bold. Like I keep coming back to like, oh my gosh, I can't believe every 
animal that you're giving to a rescuer you've already spayed, neutered, and (laughs) vaccinated, that in itself is like, no rescuer would even have thought that. Like, listen, that's never going to happen. We're so honored that you took a little bit of time out of your day to to chat with us and to let us know all the amazing things you're doing. And we definitely want to stay tuned to any new developments um, in the next year or so. So keep us keep, keep us informed. <laughs> Absolutely. We'll do. And if anybody wants to check out you know, what we're doing, our website is www.mypasco.net slash PAS. That's Pasco Animal Services. And we have all of our new programs and services on there. We partner so closely with our media relations team. We're constantly shooting and filming new videos and features and things like that. So definitely check it out. And you guys know you'll be hearing from us as well. And I hope to do this again someday. It's very rare that I'm so speechless, but Spencer and his whole team seem to have that effect on people. They're doing so much to preserve the human-animal bond, as well as evolving to support their community in so many other ways. If you want to learn a little bit more about them, you can check our show notes or our blog. As always, remember to rate, like, and subscribe to this podcast. And be sure to follow Cuddly on all social media accounts at We Love Cuddly. That's C-U-D-D-L-Y. Thanks, guys.